This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. This is Dr. Gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And thank you again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. This week's guest has been called one of today's leading global talent and business development advisors in the areas of leadership and sales. He's authored 30 books, four college textbooks, and four of those books are bestsellers. He's also the publisher of Professional Performance Magazine. He works extensively with C-suite executives, business leaders, and owners, military generals, and entrepreneurs to benefit them in driving efficiency and leveraging human capital to heights never imagined. We're going to talk to him about that. He's been recognized as one of the 10 outstanding young Americans by the U.S. Junior Chamber of Commerce, twice selected to represent the United States at the World Congress as a leadership speaker And he is a member of the National Speakers Association and the Small Business Entrepreneur of the Year. The United States Army National Guard and President George Bush recognized him with one of the high honors of the Total Team Victory and Citation Award for Civilian Contribution to Leadership Development with the National Guard. Please welcome Dr. Jeffrey McGee. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thank you, doctor. Appreciate the opportunity to share some ideas and just banter back and forth with you. Well, I'm always excited to have such an esteemed guest on board, but talk to me a little bit about your background. I'm interested in hearing uh, just a little about how you got to start your work with the National Guard and with the military. Having a military background, that kind of stuff always intrigues me. Appreciate that. Well, I grew up in a military family. My father's retired Air Force uh, both of my older brothers are retired Army officers, so I kind of grew up a little bit around that environment, uh, being raised, uh, being born at the United States Air Force Academy. And my father actually retired when I was two years of age. So while I was raised uh, private sector civilian, uh, very military-esque household. So discipline and structure and leadership and accountability, part of the DNA I was raised with. So that kind of followed me through my business world and to your question, how I got connected with the National Guard. Back in the late 80s, I wrote a book that became a bestseller, uh, and a uh, recruiting battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel, had come across my book at an airport bookstore. One of the chapters talked about, uh, you know, the short of it, how to take a negative and turn it into a positive in a constructive, kind of a non-BS way, and he was intrigued. He reached out to me, asked me if I wanted to come speak at a uh, leadership conference that the National Guard was putting on. Didn't have a lot of understanding of the National Guard, so quickly got uh, educated on what that meant. And that conference was in North Dakota. And what it turned out to be was uh, being raised and kind of growing up in leadership and management and sales, my own professional trajectory. Uh, In the National Guard, the sales 
uh, entity would be the military recruiters. And they're mm-hmm. just like a salesperson. They're challenged and tasked with making X amount of sales a month, and that's recruiting and enlisting people. So the group I came in and spoke to was seven different states' commanders and their sales teams. And from that, uh, it's been 20-plus years. It's just mushroomed from there. So when you went in and talked to them about that uh, sales and leadership, the recruiting of more National Guard soldiers, uh, what were some of the things that you helped them with that uh, really made a difference? What was what were they missing? It's a great question. I don't know if, I don't know if it's uh, by training, education, some great mentors I had, or just dumb luck. One of the things that I tripped into early on in my career, both managing uh, professionals and uh, having businesses that were very successful and businesses that were colossal failures, I started recognizing that any job, so this is the answer, it's also a major piece of the secret sauce of what people invite me in to, to determine, and they pay me a lot of money for this, so here's the first nugget of our podcast, yeah. is I recognized every job, no matter what it is in a business, comes down to a formula. And once I realized everything in life is a formula, Everything in life is a formula. And once you know the formula to do anything, then you can add and enhance it as long as you don't take away from the core formula and you can always make things better. But what gets people in trouble is that either A, they're, they're too stubborn or just ignorant. I don't mean people are dumb or stupid, but they're ignorant, meaning they don't understand what they do or they don't understand what they're needing to accomplish. So they lack the knowledge to figure things out. That's what I mean by ignorant. So a lot of times we promote people into jobs where they're ignorant. Now, that is exactly, and you're a former military uh, professional as well, that's the one mistake the National Guard and the military does. And let me get more specific. In the Army, you have a job, and that's referred to, so those of you listening that don't have a military background will get you up to speed. In the Army, if you have a job, it's considered an MOS. If you're in the Air Force, it's considered an AFSC. If you're in the Navy, so you know we all have our own lexicon in the military for that job. Well, in the Army... Every job has a very specific formula. I mean, how you shoot a gun, how you take care of the gun, how you un, you know take apart the gun, put it together. It's a non-negotiable. There's a freaking formula. You know how you do everything is a formula. Now, from the word formula, so I have created a model which I'm not going to share here, but I realized there's a model of figuring out this formula. Now, second part: once you look at the military, and every large business unit in the military would be called a company. So a larger part of the business unit in the army would be called a battalion. And then a larger piece of that business would be a brigade. So same thing in corporate America. I realized working with Pfizer Pharmaceutical for 30 years, you know, they have sales teams. That's like a company, basically. They have a regional manager. They have a regional vice president. That's like a battalion. They have a national entity within their different pharmaceutical divisions. That would be like a brigade that makes up the army or thus makes up a Pfizer Pharmaceutical. So I started realizing to answer your question, while I'm working with the military and working with my civilian clients, that there was a formula to every job. And if there's a formula, there's three key words. And so here's notes for our listeners to take down. Once you understand a formula to anything you do in business, then the first thing it is, is you create systems, non-negotiable systems as to how you're going to be successful and at least sustain minimum levels of efficiency and efficacy. Once you have systems, then you have processes because processes come out of systems and we train on that. You know, the training world is a billion dollar entity. Some of the leadership coaching you do and training you do and I do and others do, we get paid a lot of money to come in and help people. A lot of times not to create the systems. We're trying to create training small S systems to fall within their systems. But it really is we're training people on processes and then you come down to procedures. OK, that story is important and you actually are very brilliant because you asked a million dollar question. That's why this is your show. <laughs> in the in the National Guard, it absolutely mystifies me that when it comes to recruiting, 
That's a battalion. And the recruiting and retention battalion of the National Guard of the 54 states and territory have no system, Mm -hmm. have no process, Uh and have no procedures as a universal. And in any other part of the Army, it is a non-freaking negotiable. Everything is systematized, processed, procedures, memorialized, policies, mandates, etc. When it comes to the recruiting, it's not. So now what happens is that Let's say you, uh, Doc, you get promoted in and you're the recruiting battalion commander, typically a major lieutenant colonel, and you have any degree of common sense. Okay, so that makes you one out of only 10 of the 54 commanders in the United States recruiting battalion because only 10 have common sense. So common sense because of what I just gave you. A lot of times what happens when men in mid-level management come into a job, their ego gets them in deep trouble because they're not willing to back up and realize, I have no clue what the systems, processes, and procedures are. And so because they're not mandated, nothing systematized, they make the second mistake, is which they turn to the team that's there, which for the most part are not performing at peak performance. So they're mediocre at best. So they say, you guys tell me what it is. So now you've got the blind leading the blind. It's like the employees go, oh, my God, we have a new boss that's clueless. So we can you know, bamboozle him. And really, we now only have to work at 30% of capacity. I'm being a jerk on purpose because I can back up everything I've just said. So what I realized with the National Guard is that 10 percent of the leaders actually have a freaking clue because they've come in from a civilian sales background or they're smart enough to realize, again, what's the system? Oh, there isn't one. Okay, let me back up and ask the question then. What is we're supposed to do? And does anyone on the planet have any history of ever being successful at this? And if they would do some research and say, okay, let's look at the commanders that have been successful. Let me give them a call. Let me call. Hey, this David guy on my email tree. It's, hey, David, you used to be in essence recruiting commander or Gary or Bob or Susan or whoever, you know, what did you do? And then they would figure this stuff out. So in the National Guard, what I quickly realized is that, that every two to three years, the commanders get promoted. So it's a ready-made market. It will never go away because at the national level, there's no one there that truly has the pedigree to understand how to be successful when it comes to recruiting. So no one can create the system, process, and procedures. So everyone goes out of the way to make sure they create hurdles for anyone to be successful. That's a long-ass answer to your question, but it's very important. So first of all, what's the formula? What's the system? What's the process? What's the procedures? And here's the good news. In the last 20 years, over 75% of every one of the commanders that have made their sales mission for the year or exceeded it have been my clients. So I have phenomenal data research back to what you and I were talking about before we went live in terms of statistical data as to what does and doesn't work. So the ones that don't like me don't like me because they have no clue. They can't back up except, oh, McGee, I hate him or he's not in the military, et cetera. But if they want to be successful, so for example, two years ago, the number one commander in the nation, she came into North Dakota, Lieutenant Colonel. She took over a state that was in the bottom 10. She brought me in, doubled down on every single thing I could do to help them. And in one year, she took the state from being in the bottom 10 to number one in the nation. Back up. Pennsylvania National Guard was a client. The gentleman came in there. They're number 15 in the nation. He did some data down, get figured out who could give him a clue. He brought me in. Two years, doubled down on everything I could do. He took the state from number 50 to number two in the nation. He got promoted out of that. New guy came in. New guy came in, completely blew up everything we were doing. He was able to take the state from number two in the nation back to number 50 in less than one year. Those are just two quick anecdotal examples of if you know what you're good at, you stay there. And if you know what you suck at, you don't go there. So those are two things I know, and that's why I live. And because the states are all separate in their National Guard approach, they uh, all have separate systems, separate procedures, and you have a 20-year career that will go on. <laughs> and that's exactly it. And what? So here's what's unfortunate about that for our listeners. Let's go back to private sector business professionals, which are a lot of the people that listen to you. The, the problem is if you work in an environment that's heavy, heavy union mandated, then you can keep a lot of losers in your organization for a long time. 
in the military, there's a lot of phenomenal people in the military. So please, none of the listeners, do not get me wrong. I have worked for some phenomenal adjutant generals, you know, colonels, lieutenant colonels, majors, captains, you know, sergeant majors, command sergeant majors. I have met and worked with phenomenal military professionals over the past 20 plus years. But within that, I have also met a lot of people that they're very fortunate they're in the military and they understand exactly what that line is. If they cross, they would get court-martialed, go to jail, get kicked out of the military. And you can actually be incredibly, incredibly pathetic and have a 20-year career in the military and retire with full benefits. And that's what's sad because in the private sector, if I had a manufacturing line and I had someone managing that that made major mistakes, they would not get promoted. They would probably be put on some sort of a performance improvement plan or performance development plan. There would be quantifiable data. We'd run performance reviews. We'd try to help and grow them out of that problem. But if they didn't move out of it, we'd have all the documentation we need to, to exit them with, in essence, dignity and basically get them out of the company. Very hard to do that in the military. So what's also happened in the military, sadly, is that I have met literally hundreds of of soldiers and NCOs whose active duty guard careers have been derailed by them not being able to be successful because they were not getting the resourcing they need from their officers, the training they needed from their officers, the support from their officers, the coaching and counseling from their officers, and the discipline from their officers because their officers were not being trained on how to do this right. So back to your statement, you have 54 states and territories and every one of them is reinventing the wheel because they can, because the taxpayers keep paying the bill at the end of every year. It doesn't matter if the National Guard is successful. Example, as of today, when we record this, there's 3,791 recruiters in the United States. The average pay of those recruiters, sit down, everybody, the average age of that recruiter might be in their 20s, but the average pay of those recruiters, their paycheck, their, their support systems, their credit card, their GSA car, all the resourcing, all their benefits is $102,000 a year for that person. So whether they're a sergeant first class, whether they're a master sergeant, whether they're a first sergeant, they're basically their paycheck and all that compensation that if you had a private business and you were employing them is roughly hundred grand. What's interesting of 3,791 recruiters as of today, the National Guard statistics show that basically 90% of all those recruiters right now are failing to make their mission. And their mission started in October of last year. So you can't use this pandemic, this 30-day window in right now, as to why they're all in essence imploding. They sucked before the pandemic ever showed up. But this now gives them convenient coverage as to why they're not going to make their numbers this year. So they're going to get a pass on this year. And so every year, let's take the active army. The active army for the past decade has never made their sales mission. Because, again, they've got good people that have no clue what the hell they're doing. So think about what that does to the morale of an employee when they want to be successful, but they know they do not really have had or received the right training to know how to sell a phenomenal product. Because the United States military has phenomenal white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs, has phenomenal opportunities for the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, and the National Guard. And every year, a ton of those jobs go unfulfilled because people just don't even know they exist. And if you don't want to go shoot a gun in war because of war, whatever. There's a ton of military jobs you're never going to see active war fire as well. But because we were not trained, so every year the three-star generals talk about in the army why they're not going to make their mission, and they have this great excuse that they keep coming up with. Now, I'm sure they're not bad. They would never have got to three stars. But the problem is that they're so politically engaged at that rank level, they really have no idea what the work life is like out in the field. 
And that's a trait of any successful CEO you ever visit with or meet or read about. Great business owners and leaders and CEOs are always on the front lines with their teams. They're never getting themselves in a position where they become so disconnected from what the business is all about. They don't know how to do that business. So great question. I'm sorry. I get excited there, Gary. Oh, it's good stuff. I, as you talk about this, there's a couple of things that, that you said that uh, for our listeners on leadership that need to be pointed out. Um, the first thing that you talked about were the, the challenge with a lot of the, I'm going to say just below mediocre, not not losers, not incompetent, but they're just below mediocre. They can stay and have a long career. Uh, I saw them and, and I get it, uh, but they're doing the best they can with what they've got. Their egos are getting in the way. And the real problem is that they're afraid. They're afraid and uh, of somebody like you that's going to come in there and tell them how to do their, their job. And they're afraid to admit that they don't know what they're doing. And I, I, got, I have to tell you, it's not just in the military. It's a lot of organizations where people absolutely are into situations that uh, the Peter principle, either above a grade that they uh, should be, or they have not been trained. And we talk about this all the time where people are promoted. And let's talk about sales for a second, because that's one of my favorite areas. My first book, um, on sales leadership, learning to herd cats. Uh, I talk about this in the book where the, we still do this today, where we take the best salesperson and we promote them and they don't have the skills of leadership. And in fact, the skills that they have of being the number one salesperson is often counterproductive to them being a service sales leader. Salespeople to me, and, and I check this with you. Uh, to me, sales and CEOs are the only two positions in an organization that require daily proactivity and creativity to be able to succeed. Those are the roles they have to wake up every day and say, what do we need to do today to succeed? And what do we need to do differently in the future? Absolutely direct hit. I could not disagree. I would only agree you hit it right on the bullseye. So for that reason, my experience in the military, what I've seen in the National Guard and so on, you're taking people. It's not just that they're untrained. They don't actually have the skills or the talent to be able to develop the skills to be to be in sales. And that's the job is a sales job. Only about two percent, according to statistics, two percent of the population have the creativity, the proactivity and the communication skills the creative thinking skills and the emotional intelligence in a combination to be able to be in sales. And then you take that 2% and you can cut out half of them because they don't want to do it. (laughs) And and that last word is critically important in sales. It is just like, as you said, part of the DNA of a CEO, you have to be proactive. You have to recognize at the end of the day, someone's going to have to execute the work product and that's going to be you. Uh, And again, if someone doesn't have the, the the artistry within them, the talent or whatever words we want to use to be a great salesperson. I always back them and say, wait a second. Do you believe with passion? Key word is passion. Do you believe with passion in what you do or what your organizations are about? Because if they say yes to that, I can and I can prove it because I've done it for 20 years just with the National Guard recruiters. And I can prove it with, in essence, private sector, Harley Davidson, Anheuser-Busch, Pfizer Pharmaceutical, people in industries like you and I that I've worked with, that I've coached, that I've been around. If you believe with passion, on what you do in your organization, you will be the number one salesperson in your organization year in and year out. You don't have to be the smartest, sharpest guy on the team. But if you don't believe in it, it's hard to talk to anyone about it because people are going to always read that you're trying to get me to do something, whether it's buy, join, sign up, whatever. 
And it's really being done for your benefit, not me, the recipient. But if you believe with passion what you do, uh, you'll be successful. Now, the problem with that passion, just like me, is that my passion sometimes can get you in trouble. The National Guard, I'm not in the Guard, but I went out in the field and I've worked with the recruiters. Most bosses in the Guard have it. Blows my mind. I mean, I went out and I've studied as a performance psychologist. Here's something to blow your mind. I have studied the top recruiter every year for 20 years in the National Guard. Every year, just like a, you know, insurance industry gives out, you know, the chairman's award, million dollar round table. If you work in a pharmaceutical company, it's the, you know, the, the chairman's award. You know, think about the companies you coach in essence and, and roofing and tiling and building and construction. If there's a huge sales force, there's always an award that, that, the, that the owner or the CEO gives out. And the National Guard has this for all 54 states. Someone can qualify to be the top in the state and they all go to D.C. and compete to be the number one in the nation. I've studied and interviewed and talked to those top people off and on for 20 years to figure out what is it that they're doing and not doing, why they do, what drives them, what are the behaviors. Back to the word formula a minute ago. I, I, I have identified a very specific formula of six things. If you're a recruiter and you do these six things, there is no way you cannot make mission. It is mathematically impossible to fail if you do the six things I figured out for the guard. What's stunning is that, number one, the National Guard at the national level has never done that research. Number two, the people that are responsible for training and development at the National Guard at the national level, they have never done that research. The people responsible for the training at the schoolhouse that train someone on how to be, in essence, a recruiter, 79 Tango in Little Rock, Arkansas, they've never done that research. The people in the own states that have had their number one recruiters, many of those states, they've never even done the research. I mean, it blows my mind that in private sector, what is, what is elementary, fundamental, obvious they don't do. But again, it's because it turns over every two years and it's kind of an animal and a part of the machine that people don't really know what it really is. So no one's really willing to double down and figure it out. Or when they hire someone within the guard to figure it out, here's the other part that blows my mind. So this is a personnel problem. So again, private sector, personnel did this and Gary, you were the CEO, you would fire your director of personnel in a heartbeat. The other thing they do is that they'll find the three most quantifiably biggest losers from around the nation last year. That, that, that failed to make their mission almost by the worst numbers. And that's the sort of people they promote and bring into D.C. to run the ship for two years. I mean, it boggles, it defies logic. But you can't say anything as soon as you do. See, my passion is like, wait a minute, I'm more interested in your success than you are. There's a problem right there. So thank God I don't live without one demographic. And that's why I built my portfolio of clients over the 20 years is find people, whether it's private sector, small you know, businesses that are a half a billion in size or billion dollar companies, but you find the ones where the people want to be more successful. And they're saying, hey, it's not about my ego. It is, I want to do a better job. Bring it on. And that's, I think, what gets you and I smiling with, with most all of the clients we have because they're hungry for this. Well, you just said they're hungry for this. Newsflash, most of the people do want to succeed. And if, if the executives allow people like you or I to come in and work with these pe- the, the, the people with the boots on the ground, as we'll say in the Army, we can make a huge difference. And- the, the, the challenge the challenge for a lot of this is trying to recreate what the top people do. And some of them are just really talented. It's very difficult to recreate exactly what they do. But one of the other problems to me is you just mentioned uh, an award system that I think is flawed. I, I never had the top salesperson award in my organization. And I'd had up to 100 salespeople out in the field unless... I first had the award for every single person that were at or above goal. We always recognized every single person that was at or above goal and gave them an award because they've exceeded expectations. Now, stop. Here's what you said, Gary, that's important, I think, for the listeners to even hear. So when I've studied successful salespeople, 
I'm going to take take it this a little bit of a different approach. And here's the beauty for our listeners. You and I have had some previous fun conversations. This is kind of how you and I do very similar things, but from a different way. And the beauty is we get to the same goalposts. And that's important is there's not just one way to get there. But, you know, again, you know, both with the magazine, Performance Magazine, that I've been publishing for 30 years, that, you know, you're, you've contributed a great article for it. And I appreciate it where we get top level super achievers to write articles and share their mental slices of DNA on success with, with our readers. What I've done with all the sales organizations or with the National Guard is I don't just study the number one. I do that because that's the obvious target. But I also do not study people that had made their sales goal. What I find fascinating is that I always study the people that consistently achieve more than the goal. Because I want to figure out how is it that they're consistently, keyword, achieving, keyword, more than the boss or the organization's expectation. And that's the formulas I look for. Because here's the problem in America, and this is not a military, and this is not a, a Fortune 500, and this is not a union shop or non-union shop. Gallup Organization recently did some very powerful research We look at thousands of American businesses, which meant tens and tens of thousands of survey responders and basically said this, whenever you look at a group of people, 56% of that group are going to be disengaged, complacent. They're just going to do whatever they're you know, pushed to do. And then 15% are actively disengaged, which means these are people that love to bitch for a living and find anything to complain about. And then 29% are going to double down and make things happen. So given that, what I'm consistently looking at then are the ones that consistently achieve beyond because a lot of people have learned that it doesn't do any good to really achieve beyond because I don't want to go there. The organization's not going to help me or et cetera, et cetera. So they start negative internal dialogue. So they say, you know, what's, what does I just have to do to be off the boss's radar and never get in trouble and have a good life, which is fine. But I want to study the people that are always exceeding because that's how an organization can raise the entire team up. So I just want to add that. I, I love it because what, what the people that are exceeding is you're going to find there is no formula. But there are a lot of little things that people can look at based on their own experience and the strengths that they have. They can pick and choose the things that work for them and raise their game five or 10 or 15 percent and go from being a little bit below goal to a little bit above goal and right. start to exceed. Because they say, you know, the guy that just seems to just get just a little bit ahead, just 10 percent better than goal. You talk to him and he's like, how do you do that? And he says, and you and you look at his behaviors and you find he's the guy that makes those five extra calls after three o'clock on Friday. And there's it's not anymore going to be a clue. Always. There's, there's a little bit more effort. There's a little bit more focus. And one of the things, especially in sales that I found with the best salespeople, and tell me if you see this with the best recruiters, they are absolutely hyper-focused on the priorities that they are working on. And if something isn't going to contribute to them achieving their goal, they're very quick to disqualify that. And I've said this all the time. If you're in sales, the key to sales is not qualifying customers. It's disqualifying quickly. So you're not wasting your time. Yes. To everything you just said. Yeah. So it, it's, it's fun talking about this because sales is such a, people think it's this woo woo artsy, you know, uh, all creative uh, kind of a thing. And it's not, it's very <laughs> process very disciplined, very hard work, and, and then skill-driven, emotional intelligence, communications, clarity and priority, time management. Oh, I don't believe in time management. It's only it's priority management, but let's right. not worry about that. Absolutely <laughs> correct. And, and again, you know, if, you give, if you give people a roadmap and people want to be successful, they'll follow that roadmap and they'll have levels of success. The problem is, is that we have beat people down mm. in lots of organizations to such a level that people are afraid to even try to be a super achiever 
because the organization, while it may say they support it and want it, it does not. And while leaders and mid-level management leaders may say they want that, their actions do not. So a lot of people, they don't really bust their butt. I mean, you know, just right now, and again, you know, when you and I visit, we always like to try to keep our comments and and uh, and what we write editorial-wise as evergreen as possible. That way people can see how to apply these no matter when they come back and hear us or read us. And when you try to mentally operate from being evergreen, the power of that is it causes you to really think about what you're doing or what you're about to say and say, okay, is there any runway to this concept, this word, this policy, this procedure, this technique, this whatever to be successful? Or is this just situation that'll work today, but it'll never work again? So in the, in the spirit of being evergreen, the challenge is right now as we're recording this, we're in the, the middle of this pandemic, whether it's you know manufactured or whether it's legitimate or whether it's bullshit, doesn't matter which line you fall down on, because those are all the demographics of where everyone in the world is. The reality to it, though, is that to be successful, you've got to recognize it doesn't matter what your situation is. People want a framework of what success looks like. And if we actually started celebrating that, we'd get a lot more of it. So this morning, there was a, a podcast that I was on before yours, and, and part of the conversation was virtual. Uh, and one of the questions that came in was, you know, when we come out of the pandemic, whenever that is, will this everyone being kind of you know locked down at home for the most part, Will it change the way business is going to operate in the future? And that's obviously a yes. But will it also cause a lot of people to say, wait a minute, you know, maybe we don't need to bring everyone back. Or we can do it virtually. And so my response to that was, no, that would actually be a major mistake. And here's why. And I shared that Gallup poll. If you're going to have people working from home that do have self-restraint and have self-integrity and have self-accountability to just, as you said, what does I need to do and have that hyper-focus you just talked about and discipline, then it doesn't matter who they are. They'll work great from home. But the problem is, go back to my 56 percenters. If you have 56 percenters in your organization like Gallup and they're going to work from home, you have to have accountability mechanisms to keep them focused because the problem when you're working from home is it's easy to get distracted and turn on the news, turn on the television, see what's going on on some midday talk show of stupid people, do the laundry, take your pet for a walk, etc. But if you were in your office, you wouldn't do any of that. And then 15 percent of people already in the workplace are not working very hard. They're trying to undermine everyone and everything. So now if they're at home, I mean, they're, they're not going to be doing much of anything. So then that means the 29 percenters that were busting their butt before the pandemic are now going to have to be even more hyperproductive when they're working from virtual. And that's going to cause a lot of, uh, you know, down the road, six, seven, eight months from now, what we thought was good because people were working remotely and everyone's happy, it's going to implode even more. So we can do the virtual, absolutely, but it brings on a new level of focus and concern from organizational structure and leadership. So just, you know, put that out there that it, it's interesting. Every challenge creates an opportunity. Well, let me just comment on that because you make a, a really good point and there's a couple of things that, that strike me. Number one, our definition of leadership is the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassion and accountability. It's very hard when people are, are, are working virtually to really understand with a compassionate level of uh, human connection what's going on in their life. So you have to go based on results entirely, just 100% results. I used to tell my salespeople this all the time. If you're challenging challenge with something personally because 85% of all performance problems at work are because of things outside of work. And if you're struggling, I need to know, and I'll, I'll do everything I can to have you back to support you and do what we can do to, to uh, get you through these periods of time because people need help sometimes, even in sales. But if you don't tell me, if then I can only go based on the results. The other part of what you're talking about is the human, the, the central human need. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs was wrong. 
They talked about physical needs and, and uh, security and then belonging and uh, results and self-actualization. He was wrong. And what they found recently in a lot of these psychological studies and performance psychologists that you are, you can understand this, is that at the center is a sense of belonging, is a sense of a need for human belonging. In that human belonging, we talk about, oh, is the handshake uh, gone by the way of the coronavirus? No, because we need to touch. Humans need to have that touch. So if people are virtual, they're never touching each other. They're never connecting. They're never getting a real sense of belonging. That proximity of other human beings is necessary. So maybe we change it where they work a day a week out of the house and the other four are in, and you can then measure what they're doing when they're gone that day. Maybe some things will shift, but I agree with you hundred percent. We cannot take people out of that environment and expect them to still feel a sense of belonging. It's not going to happen. It's huge. You know, and again, you know, one of the, one of the worlds that I live in uh, today, it's not what I ever grew up to think I was going to be. I mean, my, my passion in high school was journalism and photojournalism. I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And back in the day, it had a major morning newspaper and had a major afternoon newspaper. Uh, and before I went to college, I'd already had over a thousand articles and, and photographs published in the major daily newspaper. I was a journalist for them. I uh, went to college on a political science, journalism and cross country scholarships and you know, so running athlete and, you know, and, and journalism, and that was my passion. Spent time in Kansas City doing broadcast news and, and print journalism. And one day I walked away from a cold because I became so discouraged with how negative and bitter and ugly journalism was back in the 80s, you know, because it's definitely not that way today. And how, you know, every journalist thought that they were, you know, endowed by God to be, in essence, the person to bring down everyone else's faults and problems because they're better than the guy that got crucified, evidently. And again, thank God journalism is not like that today. But if you're ever unemployed, there's always one. Uh, I see a tongue in your cheek, but I, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> How can you speak with your tongue in your cheek? I'm just wondering about that. <laughs> it, 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 it is crazy. So if you're ever unemployed, there is a sales job, kind of what you and I have been talking about for the past couple of minutes. And if you're not good in sales, you may not keep it, but there's always a sales job. Always. Because always. most people don't like to be the revenue generation part of the machine that allows everyone in the company to actually have their job. I mean, someone has to move whether it's a tangible or intangible, whether it's e-commerce or traditional brick and mortar, someone has to sell the product at the end of the day. So yeah. I went into sales. But from that, I slowly evolved into where I am today. I didn't know that there was training and development. Leadership development was a billion-dollar industry on the globe, and, and people got paid to share ideas to help someone else be more successful. I had no idea that it even existed back sure. to your you know, first questions. When uh, I wrote that book, I was working in, in advertising and marketing. And, and when the commander called me from North Dakota and said, hey, I've got your book. We'd love to bring you in and, and pay you to speak and et cetera, I started evolving into this space. But I, I say that as a backdrop to Gary, what you just said is really important for, for our listeners today. And that is, again, your background as a, as a college professor and a business owner and, and a business leader and executive before you went into you know, leadership development, talent development, and coaching, is that there, there's always going to be a, a next evolution in any deliverable. So just like here, this platform, we can share ideas, you know, via audio podcast or audio video podcast, live streams. Uh, you know, people are going to go to a to a to a small conference with a half a dozen or dozens or hundreds of people in a room, and and there's going to be meeting people talking and sharing, and maybe an outside guest speaker comes in. There's going to be conferences and conventions with big stages. You know, the speaking industry, which was huge, you know, five months ago as we're recording, is going to come out of this dramatically different. It's going to take two or three years for it to get back to where it was, 
January of this year. Um, you and I were around on 9-11. It's the exact same thing that happened then. I mean, Las Vegas, it took Las Vegas about two and a half years to get back up to speed and people having meetings again. So all of this online platform is another deliverable. But in the training and development world, there is a big discussion about, you know, do we really even need to bring people together to do that? And, and the ones that are saying no, sadly, don't understand what their mouth is saying. Because number one, they've either not, not never signed the front of a payroll check or they've never been around people. So this, this video and online platforms are another distribution channel for our product, which is wordsmithing. And this is going to be a very powerful new distribution channel. And we'll find ways to use it even more effectively in the coming six months, even though it's been here for the previous six months. But but the pandemic will cause people to think twice. With that said, though, there is still a need for people to be face to face, just as you said, whether it's the fist bump, the arm bump, the foot bump, the handshake. That's not really it. It really is. We've got to be face to face to see each other, to to vibe off each other, to be able to read each other, to be able to brainstorm on the fly with each other. And, and that that also causes the connections. And I love your massive hierarchy of needs. Let me give our, our listeners maybe another visual. Think of a dartboard on the wall. And that center ring is whatever the whatever the centermost point of gravity is. So, Gary, you just suggested it's a sense of belonging for people so that's that right. the, the circle in the middle and then whether it's maslow's other four or five levels or you the listener you and i make up our own next levels each of those are the subsequent rings going outward but there has to be always a center of gravity that brings people together think about this pandemic and i'm not going to get into politics no one needs to freak out here but just think about it in the first couple of weeks when the president of the United States shut down the country, everyone was 100% on his side. Both political sides, you know, go back and look at the videotape, as they say. You'll see everyone on both sides of the political aisle, 100% behind the president. No one was bitching. No one was undermining. No one was doing Monday morning quarterbacking and questioning. They're saying, yeah, the statistics from around the globe right now say this thing is freaking scaring the crap out of all of us because that was the only math they had. Now, what we know now today is that the math was all wrong in the beginning, and so we're not going to have a half a million people in Italy dead and millions of people around the other countries dead and 2.1 million Americans dead because we're always looking at the data and refreshing it. But now what's interesting today is to see all the backstabbing and different people taking different sides to bitch and complain and undermine what we're doing because back to Gary, your sense of belonging, that center of gravity is no longer there. So the point of that story is just like after 9-11, everyone was an American a year or two later, then we could debate whether we were or not. So business leaders, you've got to understand when those small windows of commonality open up and everyone has a common sense of gravity, that's what pulls people together. And that's when you can get a small number of people to do massive accomplishments. That's when there's that car wreck and the car's upside down and there's just a person in there. And whether half a dozen bystanders come over to help and try to lift the car or not, doesn't matter. But if I change that story and there's an upside down car and there's an old lady inside injured or there's a little baby in there injured, isn't it interesting how that same half a dozen people can run over? the car and lift because there's a common center of gravity that's undebatable and everyone's drawn in and a half a dozen people lift that car up and they get the person out and boom that's what's on youtube and everyone's stunned so you've got to understand that center of gravity again gary you just gave the world about a million dollar piece of insight clue with that word well and uh and, I, and i'll go back to the beginning for you and uh as we end this understanding your formula as you talked about and it doesn't matter whether it's sales or leadership management manufacturing construction government there's there's systems processes and procedures that need to be followed but you can't improve the process and i learned this in manufacturing you can't improve the process till you define the process once it's defined then we can improve it so you've helped a lot of people define their process improve their systems and procedures so that they could recreate excellence over and over and over again. And that's 
what your performance magazine is all about. And it's what it sounds like your life's work is all about in creating amazing, amazing results for your clients. Any final words, Jeff, for the listeners today on, on leadership and this whole idea of what we're trying to create in this new world? It is amazing. Thank you. Number one, thank you for the invitation, opportunity to come into your guarded space and your followers and share some ideas. And hopefully I've not offended, but hopefully I push some people to an uncomfortable place because that's always good. Uh, the answer, I, you know, again, there's a model I call trajectory code. Uh, it's a formula I've been using in my coaching and business work. It's peppered throughout a couple of my graduate textbooks on management leadership. Uh, and years ago, I had a great client in Illinois. It's a $6 billion financial organization that I um, have been given the honor of flying to Illinois one day a month for over a decade to work with their top 40 leaders. And one afternoon, one of the executives, she came up and pulled me off to the side, just a phenomenal woman, sharp, sharp, sharp lady. Everyone wants to be in her space. And she said, I want to share a story with you if I could. And I said, absolutely. And she says, you know, I was thinking about the trajectory code model and she starts using my language. And that's when I realized I, I had crossed a line of having impact. She said, I've got two teenage boys and one of them's going off on the wrong trajectory. So I sat down with my husband and I shared with him your trajectory code model. It made sense. We sat down as a family. I explained it to our boys as a family. We came up with answers on this trajectory code model. We wrote those down on a piece of paper, put that paper on the refrigerator with a magnet. It's changed every conversation in our house and our family is back together and she's getting emotional at this point. And that caused me to really stop and reflect. At the time, I was owner in a $117 million training and development company based in Bozeman, Montana. I sold my one-third uh, interest in that several years ago. But I would go downtown in Bozeman, which is a beautiful, small, quaint little town in Americana. Uh, four traffic lights, and you went through the whole town, basically. And I would go to one of the coffee shops. It would open up at 6 a.m., and I'd sit down and write until my brain was empty. And over a course of half a year, I wrote the book, Traje Your Trajectory Code. So I, I share that to get to the, 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 the question you posed. What I would leave our listeners with is just have some sort of a model. If you don't have one, go find one. Gary has one. I have one, wherever. But have a formula, a model that works for you as always your go-to formula in any situation in life, good, bad, or indifferent, that can help you to recognize, am I on the trajectory I need to be on for where I want to go in my life? And if so, double down and keep going. But have a formula or model so you can ask the question, am I on the right trajectory where I need to be on this day, this situation, or in my life, or with my whoever? And if it's a no, then you can objectively then recalibrate to get back on trajectory and be successful. Because everyone gets knocked off their trajectory. Any successful person in life gets knocked on their butt. The difference is, is how fast do you learn from the mistake, get back up, dust yourself off, and move forward so I would leave everyone with what's the model you have to know if you're on the right trajectory in life and are you, in essence, accelerating towards your goals in life? Because, again, we only get this one life that we know about and you have no proof you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. So today is it. Live showtime. Today is your legacy. What are you going to leave this day with when it's over? Are you on trajectory? Well, I like that. And that like so many things that you and I talk about fits right in with our uh, my second book on uh, the seven steps of intentional leadership. Step number one is purpose. And what's the first component of purpose? Personal mission statement. Personal mission statement is our compass to keep us on the right trajectory. Waking up every day, remembering what that is to keep us on trajectory. So thank you for that, Jeff. Thank you for your uh, your insights, your thoughts, and your passion with all of this. Um, You're welcome. And, uh, thank you. We could go on for hours. We could have a daily podcast, you and I, I think. I love it. Thank you. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. 
Thank you for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.